Hey, this is Greg, producer of the Mickey Dudes Podcast. And if you enjoy relaxing on a voyage of discovery and awareness or being whisked away on a carefree highway in the sky, then we have a real treat for you. So come on over, grab yourself a chair, and join me in the corner chat. Tonight, I am so excited to introduce my very special guest. But before we board the boat and begin our journey, let's take a moment to review some of his outstanding accomplishments. You can hear his music on one of the most popular rides in all of Walt Disney World in millions. Yes, folks, I said millions of park guests have heard his voice. He's also a three-time Emmy Award winner, Disney file, husband, father, sports fan, and in every sense of the word, a true renaissance man. I'm honored to welcome to the Corner Chat, Mr. Mike Brissell. Hi, Mike, and thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Hey, Greg. How you doing? I'm so happy to be here, I tell you. What an introduction. Thank you so much. Wow. (laughs) You're too kind. In the intro, I had mentioned that uh, not only is your voice heard in the parks, but your music as well. You... Mike, are the voice of Living with the Land, the Tomorrowland Transit Authority People Mover, and you even composed the ride soundtrack for Space Mountain. Heck, you've even become a cartoon. In your wildest dreams, could you have ever, ever imagined that? That's a great question, and no, I could have never imagined this, uh, ever. Uh, what an astounding, uh, uh, amazing feeling, actually, to be able to have done these wonderful, wonderful uh, things, and of course, to be uh, part of the magic for Disney, for not just uh, um, not just all the millions of uh, Disney fans out there, but for myself and my kids. It's unimaginable, but I'm very, very happy and pleased to be a part of it. Well, looking over your Disney tenure, you've had quite a stellar career look over the list of projects that you've been a part of okay we have fantasia 2000 brother bear tarzan atlantis beauty and the beast emperor's new groove and lilo and stitch is there any particular project that's more meaningful than the others i gotta say lilo and stitch uh was one of my favorites to work on you said meaningful and i i have to say it's because of the artwork uh, and what I saw go into it from start to finish, it was a new character, a new take on a, a hero character for Disney. The watercolor backgrounds and the whole art direction was simply fantastic. It was, a, it was just a fresh take and it all worked. Uh, let me ask you, what are some of your favorite memories of your time with Disney feature animation? Is there any two, three things that just always stick out in your mind? Yes, absolutely. First, the people. The people that they get there, the professionals and the quality of work and how, how wonderfully nice people they are, it was astounding to me. I didn't know that coming from a small town in Ohio. I, I had no idea. When you meet these people that do these things, you, you wonder how they'll be, what they'll be like. But they're just as awesome as people as they are artists, and I think that's something to say. That's one thing that will always live with me, uh, and their astounding talent it's just amazing to behold, and I really do mean that. A lot of adjectives being thrown around, but I, I mean every one of them. They, I respect all of their abilities. They, they went to school for it, paid a lot of money to do it. They're very, very talented naturally, and then Disney helped them out and uh, helped to create this, this wonderful medium that I really enjoyed participating in. The second thing, of course, is Disney's process. They spare no expense when they really want to get something done, done right, and uh, have their audience enjoy it. That's what I really love. There's quality every everywhere and and that's a good thing to see and we love to experience it when we go down to the parks also those are the two top things i think for me and just just to be able to work on a disney film 
<laughs> it's yeah, amazing. that's an amazing experience it for sure. Just in itself, yes. Well, earlier I had alluded to you becoming an animated character. Can you share with us the, the backstory of how that happened? Yes, absolutely. There are two places, I'm sorry, where I appear on screen. Uh, but this all started with a friend of mine at, when I was working on Fantasia 2000. I w- had delivered something to his office. I was a PA at the time, production assistant. And uh, after I was finished, I was leaving, and he was uh, having lunch. And he said, hey, Mike, hold on. And he says, have a seat. I said, what's going on? He goes, and they always used to do drawings and uh, and caricatures of people and things like that. He was in the middle of, of uh, devising a character and he handed me a bowl and he positioned my hand and, uh, and he handed me some chopsticks uh, and he asked me to hold it just for a minute. Of course, he was drawing. I knew he was sketching something and he moved me around a, a bit by bit and then he thanked me. I put all the stuff down. I left. Weeks later, what he had done, I had found out, was he was using me as a base model for Dr. Sweet for Atlantis. And he ended up getting that approved. And I know the voice character is Phil Morris, and they really like to tweak the character to make it look like the person who's voicing it as well. But I'm the part of the base model for that, which I'm very, very proud of. I, that's just It's just kind of a cool thing that, that happened for me. That is a fantastic story. Your image will be forever preserved in celluloid or, in this case, maybe pixels. <laughs> exactly, which is just the coolest thing in the world. And the, the same kind of thing happened in um, Fantasia 2000 also. I'm actually in a scene in the subway, and I'm in a suit, and I'm crawling out. I'm crawling out of the subway. That's mm-hmm. in Fantasia. Uh, the next that I appear in is actually John Henry. I, I'm in that. I think I'm the preacher in a scene, one quick scene that flashes there in the beginning as John and Polly get married. And I'm in glasses. I have my glasses on, too. So that's, that's exciting. Your image will live forever in Disney history. It's, a, it's absolutely amazing. I'm very, very honored. What an honor, indeed. I'd mention also that you're a three-time Emmy Award winner. Man, that's incredibly impressive. What do those awards mean to you, both personally and professionally? Well, personally, for me, it's something that I'm, first of all, very proud of, very humbled to have these here in my life but it's something I can pass along to the kids and in a way just pass it along to them that they can also achieve something like this and it's not like I was striving to achieve an Emmy but you do great work and sometimes it comes back to you in this form and that's something I love to teach my kids uh, for them to actually try and strive to be their best regardless of the outcome so there's that but it, it means that that I am trying to do and indeed am doing some of the things that are working for me in my career and in the, uh, the career field of my peers who look at this and say, you know what, Mike, it's a validation that your work is as good as uh, to deserve this award. So I'm very appreciative of that. And that's exactly what I was thinking. Validation for hard work and dedication to the crafts. That's amazing and fantastic. So congratulations to you for that. Uh, thank you so much. It is an honor. I love them. I've got them sitting right here. <laughs> oh, you do? I was going to ask you, where do the Emmys live in Mike Brassell's home? <laughs> They're right in my studio. Just Fantastic. as a re- reminder, it's, it's, uh, it's fun. That's absolutely awesome. Okay, well, let's take a journey back in time, if you will. Now, you are originally from, is it Bluffton, Ohio? That's exactly right. Okay, now where is that in relation to Cleveland? Okay, Cleveland. It's a couple of hours away. We Mm -hmm. are in the northwest corner of Ohio between Dayton and uh, uh, Toledo. Okay, well, as you know, recently the Cavaliers won the NBA championship coming back from a 3-1 to deficit, which totally blew my mind, but congratulations to them. That's like the first time in history for that kind of deficit. So with your roots in Ohio, what does that victory mean to the city of Cleveland? Oh, man. Well, it's, it's a... 
it's a recompense, I think, is the, probably the best word I can use. What with the history of LeBron leaving and then going to Miami and getting a, a champ or winning a, a championship or two with them. To come back and to be able to do it for Cleveland is something that I know made Cleveland very proud. And it showed their forgiveness. Yeah. <laughs> They were salty when he left, you know. And it's uh, been such a tremendous drought for professional sports in the state of Ohio. So bringing a championship to the state was just phenomenal. It was. It really was. And yes, yes, we all feel for the Browns. I was a Browns fan for a long time there. Uh, go Brownies. But uh, I'm an Ohio State Buckeyes fan as well. Oh, really? Oh, uh, yeah. And I love what uh, Urban Meyer has done with them. Uh after Trestle, of course, but they've always had a good and storied history, uh, and I love following them. Well, hey, while we're on the sports theme here, let's talk about Muhammad Ali. Sadly, we lost him June 3rd. Now, in doing research for the show, I went to your Facebook page, and I took a look at your profile picture. There's a photo of Muhammad Ali with this cute little guy in his lap. Now, and I'm thinking, I wonder who that is. So, Mike, tell us, do you have a personal connection to the greatest? <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, with that particular picture, that I'm very proud of that picture. Actually, that's one of my favorite pictures. That's uh, me. I, I'm being held by the greatest, uh, which I'm very happy, uh, happy to announce. But that really came. I was a baby. Obviously, I had no choice in the matter. But it was because of my father, who I and the entire family hold in the highest uh, regard and the, have the highest esteem for. My dad was uh, was an awesome individual all around. Uh, he was just a pillar of the community, a, a believer, and it, it did not hesitate to tell anyone how awesome they could be and what their awesome potential was. He was very encouraging, and it's something that I love to have as a part of my own personality. My father was a boxer from Lima, and that's not too far away from Bluffton. And his his history was uh, fantastic as well. Just a kid who had a little bit of talent, someone saw him, uh, helped him to refine it, and he reached the, the top levels. I mean, three days before I was uh, born, he was in the ring with Foreman. He lost the bout, uh, and uh, I wish I could tell you that story. It's so it's long and drawn out. However, uh, he lost. <laughs> he didn't want to quit, but his manager threw in the towel uh, a little too early. It's okay, but he was so fast with his hands he drew the attention of angelo dundee as you know ali's trainer right and from that point uh he was asked by ali's trainer to come train with him and they went down to miami and brought me with them and i that's where they were training and that's where you see the picture there well your dad then certainly had a part in making muhammad as great as he was by being such a competitive sparring partner, correct? Yes, I, I would have to say that, not just because of uh, he's my father, but because they have to surround Muhammad Ali with people who help him become better. Well, it's interesting because Muhammad Ali had a training camp here in Pennsylvania that he worked out at from, I think it was around 1972 up till, 19, I want to say 1980. And it's very fascinating because if you go to that training camp now, They've kept it much in the shape and in the condition as what it looked like when Muhammad was there. So it's almost like frozen in time, which is really neat. Wow, that must be awesome to see. 
that's located in a suburb of the Reading area. Oh, that's awesome, Greg. And honestly, with uh, Muhammad Ali's legacy, I, I know, of course, all the drama that surrounded his life and his choices uh, there, especially uh, uh, late 60s, early 70s. But what I love about what people w- were remembering about Ali was how philanthropic he was and how much he enjoyed being with kids and helping to encourage and be positive to them, for them, and, and for anybody else he touched, as a matter of fact. I really liked him hearing that that's a good part of the legacy of the greatest that he left to. That's great. An absolute gentle giant. Yes, absolutely. You've also done some voice acting for EA Sports, correct? I did. As a matter of fact, I've done some, uh, I did some commercials for them for Tiger Woods, as a matter of fact. Oh, no kidding. How cool. Yeah. Wow. Hey, I could talk sports all night long. But I think we might move some of our demographic. But let's get into professional football. I understand you're a Dolphins fan. I am. I love the Dolphins. <laughs> I love them so much. I think they're fantastic. Go ahead. All right. So what do you think as far as projections for this year? Now, everybody knows they went 6-10 and 10 last year. We've got a new GM, a new head coach in place. What are you thinking, Mike? Okay, Adam Gase. He's, first of all, a great choice. He knows how to run an offense. We need that. We need to see the quarterback be loosened up, allow to make, be allowed to make audibles. Uh, we've got Arian Foster, which I think is a good pickup. I know he, Absolutely. he gets hurt a lot, but even so, maybe we can use him up in a good way professionally uh, for our advantage and, and get over that 500 percentage. We've got, some, uh, we've got some great players with some great potential. We've got a greater and a stronger O-line, and that's important uh, as well. And we've got some good defense. I don't know how it's going to shake out yet, but I feel much better this year than I did last year. Well, if they want Tannehill to be that franchise quarterback, they've got to protect him. So let's see what happens. Yes, and he's got to prove himself too. Are you thinking 8-8, eight and eight, or maybe are you going to go with a bold prediction, go 10-6? and six? Yeah, I, I go 10 and 6. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see if that holds. I sure hope it does. I, I want to be pleasantly surprised. Come on, Finns. All right. Well, let's jump back into the music. As I had mentioned earlier, you composed the ride audio for Space Mountain in Orlando. Can you give our listeners a little bit of feedback on how you landed that project? Yes, actually, I can. This is when I, when I tell this, it's always a, a surprise to me how it happens. And I feel very lucky that it did. But uh, we were going uh, to check out the audio for uh, the Tomorrowland Transit Authority People Mover. And as we were walking towards it, I had already done the voiceover. We were just going to check out the, uh, the load in and make sure things were balanced accordingly. I should say, I'll tell you what happened first, and I'll tell you my philosophy behind it. We were walking, and the park was closed towards the uh, uh, people mover, and I got asked by my producer. He goes, hey, you know what? Do you write music? Just right then and there, just kind of off the cuff. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I definitely do. Uh, He goes, oh, okay, okay, good. I'll keep that in mind. We've got a project coming up, and that's pretty much how he left it. Then Mm -hmm. we went on, checked the the voiceover for the the attraction, which, of course, I was in awe. It was cool. Uh, It was fun, and what a great night to do that. So great memories. All of a sudden, I get an email a couple weeks later from my producer. And uh, in it, he he says, hey, um, here's – I'm going to send you a contract. And this is the project I was telling you about that I couldn't tell you about. <laughs> so I receive it. I open it up. And lo and behold, it says Space Mountain. And I start freaking out all over the place. I mean, I'm running out of the studio screaming and yelling. My kids think the house is on fire. I'm going nuts. <laughs> I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? It's me? I can't believe this. Uh, so 
I was just on cloud, you know, 11 teen. Yeah, I can imagine. That is just a moment like none other. Wow. Yeah, I agree. It was a moment like none other. What a perfect way to describe that. Kind of like an out-of-body experience, you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you, never forget the time. It was unbelievable. Well, just recently, Aerosmith announced that they're going to be heading out on a farewell tour. So that kind of opens up maybe Rock and Roller Coaster. And so I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Let's put on our our Imagineering caps for a moment, okay? Okay. (laughs) Do you think Disney, do you think they'll replace Aerosmith with another band or change the overall theme? Do you have any thoughts or suggestions? You know, it's been very successful with a a band that's well known uh, so far that I think Disney likes to stick with what works. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, this is an opportunity for them to shake things up, of course. And of course, they love all their synergistic branding and marketing. So they they have one of many properties they could put in there, but they want to have a winner for sure. So I think they always like to tout the stars that they have working with them and for them. And they'd love to plug in someone who is out well-known right now as another band. I think they would like to do that first. And then if they can't find someone, can't do a deal they'll go with one of their properties hmm. well personally i like the jonas brothers so i'm i want to get those guys back together and put them in there so hey you know they may do that disney's got the power <laughs> absolutely well in addition to scoring attraction audio you also have your own music production company called i need more music can you give us an overview of what exactly is production music and some of the genres that you have available? Uh, yes. Production music, plainly and simply, is the music that uh, helps to fill in the scenes of uh, movies like background music when you're seeing a main character and or main characters and they're talking. And if they're in the club, this background music is coming out of speakers or coming out of a jukebox directly. Or it could be a visual vocal where your main character is actually singing on um, camera. And this is separate from the score. The score is music, of course, that the main characters cannot hear. And production music or background music is music that they can hear in the world of that movie. Also, production music is used a lot for advertisements and trailers, kids' toys. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, a, there's a ton of use. I, I can't go down the list, the entire list, but uh, there's a ton of uses for production music. And we offer uh, pop ourselves. We offer hip-hop trap, R&B. We're writing trailer music right now. We're doing corporate music, and that's, that's wanted and needed a lot. There's some sports rock in there, and we're going to try to offer as much as we can. And you, just to make this clear, you do scoring and production music. Yes, sir, I do. Well, let me ask you, being in the creative arts field myself, I always like to find out how other folks in the industry work through a project. So when you're writing music, there's there's so much to think about and consider. Where do you start the process? Like in your instance, is it with a beat, a bass line, the melody? How does it all come about? Okay, if I'm just starting a new piece... I'll uh, I'll pull up a template of something that I know that I'm going to write in that particular genre. So if it's hip-hop, I'll start with a hip-hop template. And, and don't get me wrong, when I say template, it's not that I use the same sounds over and over. It's just that it gets me to all my VSTs and all my uh, soft synths much faster than sitting there and building it one by one. So if I have the uh, template up, I'm able to just start with a beat, perhaps. But I like to kind of flip through some of my sounds sometimes and just listen. Uh, and I might have an idea already stored on my iPhone 
phone with my voice memos. A lot of times uh, musical ideas for me come when I'm not sitting in front of the keyboard or not. I'm not at a place where I'm thinking about writing a piece of music. So put the idea down in my voice memo and come back when I'm ready to write. And I'll have a melodic idea at that point to start with. And then, of course, that'll be the melody. Or I, I might already have a beat made up to that melody and start with the beat, get it tight, and then start with the melody and then start adding other things in until I feel like I've got something worthwhile. And how much on your phone or iPad do you rely on GarageBand to lay something down quickly just for a concept or idea? A zero, as a matter of fact. You oh, might really? be surprised to hear that. Yeah. Hmm. I don't actually use GarageBand to do that because I my ideas for me flow much better if I'm just singing it as if it were a tape recorder. I see. Because then I could come back with my voice memos and just go, okay, I know exactly what I meant by this. I know what I meant by that. I knew that I was coming in with the drums here and that it all comes flooding back when I get to the studio. So I, I don't actually use those programs to inspire me or to write an idea or to sketch an idea. Oh, interesting. Well, you are both a sound designer and composer. And I think a lot of people don't know the difference between those two roles. Can you explain that for us? Yes, I can. Sound designer. Uh, a sound designer can use music as sound design, of course. So when, you, when you're seeing um, an ad and you're hearing the music, someone has scored that music or written the music or they've licensed it from a production music library, which is great. So a sound designer, especially for video, we're speaking, will use that same piece of music and will do a slowdown effect, for example. Uh, a slowdown with a chopped effect, like... And they'll uh, roll nice. it or reverse it back up as well. Yeah. yeah. And so they'll use sounds as uh, part of the environment to help the listener or the viewer feel like they're really in this environment. And that's what a sound designer does. All right. So you're currently based in Nashville. Yes. Has living in the country music capital of the world influenced your writing in any capacity? Well, yes, absolutely. Because it is a writer's market. It's a writer's city. So... It's very much about the song. So you have to be really strong in making sure your lyrics make sense, making sure that they're singable, making sure that you have tight, strong, memorable hooks. It's very it's very song-oriented, which is what I really love, too. I mean, I get a chance to jump from score to songwriting as well, especially with the production music, and I get a chance to kind of stretch and make sure my songs are tight and make sure that they're industry standard and that they have the kind of hooks and the quality to them that somebody will want to listen to over and over again. And there's also a pretty sizable segment of the gospel and contemporary Christian music scene represented on Music Row as well, correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. So there's a wide variety. It's not just country music in Nashville. No, uh, and, and, as, uh, and of course, it's got a huge base for that, which is wonderful. Again, it's fantastic. But they are music city. They really are open to all the genres. Uh, a lot of the labels are represented there, too, that are not just country music. So it is truly a music city, uh, which I love. A multi-music city, I should say. All right, well, let's draw back Disney into our picture here. Can you tell us about your contribution to the documentary Dream on Silly Dreamer? Yes. Oh, I, that meant a lot to me, as a matter of fact. Directed by Dan Lund and produced by, by Tony West, uh, both a couple of good friends of mine that I used to work with at Feature Animation. And they were just telling the story of how 2D and feature animation and what Walt uh, had wanted originally had such a great life, such a wonderful arc uh, with uh, Lion King, I think, being at its uh, apex as 2D was just magically living on and Everyone loved it. And then, of course, as new technology tends to do uh, and progression happens, things like that get pushed aside, unfortunately. And 
Unfortunately, so do uh, does the personnel that work on that. And that's exactly what happened when one of the 3D films came out and became a huge hit. It sort of uh, made everybody in the industry who produced those types of movies go, uh, wait a minute, you know, I think we might be, they, somewhat, they might be onto something and we need to be sure we're on the uh, cutting edge. And Disney loves that and they're great at being on the cutting edge. But someone has to go. And ultimately, uh, we did. I mean, 2D, 2D animators and, of course, the support staff. So uh, it was a very poignant film, Dan, captured by capturing sort of the end of 2D in the Florida studio and, of course, Disney-wide. I was just proud to be able to participate in that. I got a chance to work with Roy Disney uh, in that um, in that picture as well. Yeah, that's a great story in itself. Can you give us a little bit about working with Roy? He did believe in 2D, and, of course, he held up that vision with Fantasia and Fantasia 2000 and championing 2D animation uh, until it's... Uh, demise unfortunately so he was just a he was a great supporter of that and we of course always appreciated that to be able to see a disney championing those efforts yeah it is truly a lost art form that is a great documentary so if, if you have not not me not, not you mike but if anybody out there listening has not seen that it's it's a great way to get a lot of history on the process and, and a lot of the older technology you're involved with the cap system correct Yes, that's correct. As a matter of fact, I was assistant production manager of CAPS. Uh, it was fun. What a fun job that was. And that must have been, from a management standpoint, very demanding. You had to be incredibly organized and structured on how you did things. Yes, Greg, absolutely. I mean, and Disney demanded that, too, from their managers uh, and made sure that they were being sharp and managing processes and their systems, uh, which were proprietary, of course, and worked very well. Uh, and yes, it was demanding because the, the CAPS system itself saw as a fun Think of it as a funnel. All the films had all their processing go through caps. So uh, not only uh, was Lilo and Stitch uh, operating, the Brother Bear was kicking up, and uh, there was another film as well. And all those need to use us in their post-processing. So it was there was a lot to keep uh, up with, but uh, we had a great team, and I think we did a great job. Proud of everyone who I worked with. Yeah, that's a great story. Well, you've also written some tracks with Disney animator and, I might add, Pennsylvania native Eric Goldberg for The Princess and the Frog. How did that project come about? <laughs> wow. That's, yeah, you're taking me back. That's some great stuff. Uh, I always love that, that story there. I'll tell you very simply. It's a part of me, uh, even from my father, to be bold. You only live once. The YOLO thing, I think, comes into effect here philosophically. But, you know, no one knows how to... Uh, no one knows best how to market you but you. I say that because only you know what it is you want people to know about you. That might be a little confusing, but I'll simplify it by saying this. I've always told everybody what it is that I do. I've always told people I was a composer, songwriter, voice actor, and things like that. And people will remember, and if they have opportunity, they'll call you on it. And that's exactly what happened with me, with Eric Goldberg. I was working on Fantasia 2000, as a matter of fact, and I've told people that I that I write music. But uh, that got around eventually to Eric. Uh, Eric Goldberg's wife, Susan, she said, hey, Eric wants to talk to you. And that made me nervous. I was a PA. I, you know, you have a director wanting to see you. Uh, you screwed up or did something not right. good. Yeah. So I went into his office and uh, just wondering what the subject would be. And he sat me down. He goes, hey, I heard that you write music. Is this true? I said, yes, sir. And of course, immediately I brightened up. I'm ready to sell myself. He yep. goes, okay, very good, very good. I've got a project that I'm going to pitch. And he went on and told me about the things that he wanted me to do. And he gave me some storyboards and some good, great direction, I should say. This he, Eric is, first of all, a stunning 
individual, a fantastic artist. This guy is incredible. I'm very proud to have been involved in this project with him. So I took all the information. I was so excited. I went home and I wrote some music for uh, his lyrics and brought them back to him. And he even sang one. And we pitched the, well, he pitched the uh, uh, Princess and the Frog to the heads of the studio at the time. And they loved it. But they did not pick it to go forward. But they did buy our songs. Uh, it, uh, it was disappointing, but it was exciting. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, great journey. Yeah. Absolutely. Still an honor. Oh, absolutely. Well, for those of us who've listened to your interviews over the years, there's always this message of encouragement that permeates. And I'm doing my air quotes here. You say, always say yes. So in your professional career, has there been somebody who inspired, mentored, or instilled that sense of positivity in you? Where does that come from? Well, that, that comes from, it really comes from my father, uh, honestly. It really does. Just, you have such fantastic potential. You, yourself, Greg, anyone listening to this. Oh, um, thank you. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's something I take on just to, to be sure to remind you of how awesome you can be. I mean, I look at it like uh, the Olympics. That is a, a world stage for the world's best to compete to see who's actually going to be the world's best. So there is the potential for a person to reach their best. And not just on the Olympic level, but just philosophically in your life as it stands right now. Uh, if you don't like what you're looking at, you can change it. I mean, all of these things are important. And when I say yes, the importance of saying yes is to be open to opportunity and not shut yourself out of things that are going to really help you out and plus your life. Well, we need more people to put encouragement out in the world like you. So for that, I thank you. That's fantastic. And, and great advice for especially young kids coming up in their professional lives and facing the real world and all the trials and tribulations of it. Fantastic advice, Mike. Well, thank you. And I'll tell you, it comes natural. When, when you see uh, people brighten up, when you hear their dreams and you share with them that there are people out there who want to help them make it, it's so exciting to hear that rather than, you know what, there's too many people out there. There's too much of that. You won't be able to make it. I, I want the, po the conversation to remain positive. And it's not like I'm being a Pollyanna. I understand there's a real world out there, but there certainly is a way to success. I really believe that. I agree. And great advice and free. All right. So, Mike, can you tell us anything of the projects you're working on right now? Is there anything that's completed or anything that you have in a queue, details that you can share with us? Well, I will say that I am proud of the project that I worked on. It was a Marvel project, as a matter of fact, and it uh, should be opening soon. I don't know when their exact dates are. I know things kept getting pushed just for completion, and it's the world's biggest indoor theme park at IMG Worlds of Adventure. And I had the opportunity to score the Avengers Battle of Ultron and Hulk's Epsilon Base. So I'm very excited about those attractions. Wow, that's quite a few pieces. Wow. Yes, yeah. Wow. I keep saying wow, but man, that's incredible. <laughs> it's fun. It's very, very fun. And then I recently landed a theme to a TV show, which I cannot announce yet, but uh, we're putting the finishing touches on the music right now, and I'm very excited about that. Fantastic. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, here at the Mickey Dudes Podcast, we are all huge fans of Living with the Land, People Mover, and Space Mountain. And personally, I can't imagine those attractions without your voice or music attached to them. Every time I'm in the parks and I hear Mike's voice, I know I'm home. That's wonderful. All right. Well, hey, before we wrap things up, we like to put our guests to the test. 
with a series of rapid-fire questions inspired by the movie Cars that we call the Piston Cup Challenge. Okay. So, here's how our game works. I'm going to put 60 seconds on the clock, Mike. Okay. And your goal is to answer all of my questions and make it around the track before time is up. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. Do you have your engine started? I think so. All right. (laughs) Pedal to the metal, Mike. Ready and go. Favorite attraction music, Soarin' Over California version or Spaceship Earth? Ooh, Soarin' Over California version. Biggest musical influence? John Williams, no doubt. Here's a gimme. I would rather have a dull whip, dull float, or turkey leg. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, Uh, turkey leg. I'm going to say turkey. I'm a meat guy. All right. Favorite Disney park, East Coast or West Coast? Oh, East Coast. Musical chord I cannot live without? A D. (laughs) A D minor. Best snack, Mickey pretzel or the cream cheese filled pretzel? Uh, Cream cheese. All right, Mike, we're coming into the home stretch. I I don't know if we're going to make it, but we're going to hurry here. Okay. Most influential moment of 1977, seeing Star Wars or learning how to play the piano? Star Wars. True or false? I secretly hope to be that guy at Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor. (laughs) False. I say false. Okay, and finally, last question. We're at the finish line here. What survives a greenhouse throwdown? Giant pumpkins or the nine-pound lemons? That nine-pound lemon. All right, congratulations, Mike. You accepted the Piston Cup Challenge, and you made it in time. Wow, look at that. We only, yeah. we only had a few tenths of a second to spare. Great, great job. Well, that was fun. Fantastic. All right, before we exit our boat... Can you please tell our listeners where they can learn more about your voiceover, voice acting, and production music? Uh, yes, absolutely. For production music, go to INeedMoreMusic.com. Uh, you can, of course, reach me at Facebook, see what I'm up to there. I'm also on Twitter, at Mike Purcell, and soon you'll see MikePurcell.com. Fantastic. We will keep an eye out for that and look forward to it. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Genevis, that's G-N-E-V-I-U-S, and look me up on Facebook at Greg Nevis. Well, that's going to bring this episode of The Corner Chat to a close. Mike, thanks once again for joining me. It's been a lot of fun. What a pleasure, Greg. Honestly, thank you so much for having me as a guest. I appreciate you. And you have an open invitation to join us anytime in the future. I look forward to joining you again. All right. Well, on behalf of my special guest, Mr. Mike Purcell, and the rest of the Mickey Dudes podcast crew, thank you for tuning in. And remember, there's always a great big beautiful tomorrow. We'll see you again next time in the Corner Chat. You've just listened to another exciting episode at the Mickey Dudes Podcast. You can find the Mickey Dudes on Facebook at the Mickey Dudes Podcast and on Twitter at the Mickey Dudes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share the love on Stitcher or iTunes. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you again real soon. We invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy your Grand Circle Tour of Tomorrowland.